The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good evening, everyone. Well, folks are getting settled. I just mentioned, uh, some, most of you know this, but usually at the end of the month, I just remind everybody that uh, one of the founding principles of the center and really of our practice is the circle of giving and receiving. And uh, so the center operates on this principle. So we don't uh, have suggested donations or fees for any of the programs. We're really hoping that people take the time and find a relationship that makes you happy. So whenever you come to the center, then the idea is to receive it as a free gift. The fact that there is this building means that many people before us did whatever we had to do to make this building come to be. And the same thing with these teachings that have been passed down one generation after another, all these centuries, women and men doing their practice, right, in their busy lives, passing it down to the next generation. And then, amazingly, we get to be the recipients of this and we receive it. So we want to it takes some real awareness to receive it. And it's actually hard work because a lot of the time the habit is to be guilty or to be dismissive of what we're receiving. So we want to do it in a very conscious way, an appreciative way. Let it touch our heart. Oh, this is really nice. So it's a cause for happiness in our hearts. And then the same thing. If you feel inspired to give money or to volunteer your time, join Brad and Ann and the others who clean on Sunday nights or volunteer in the office or there's so many ways that people volunteer to make the center happen. So if you contribute money or volunteer, then let that be just a free giving done in a way that makes you happy. And again, you have to pay attention because if you hold back in any way, that stinginess doesn't feel good in our hearts. And if you overdo it, overcommit in a way that causes you to neglect other places in your life, that's not going to feel good either. So it's like, uh, in a way, it's harder work than if we would just charge a fee or you know do what other sort of organizations often do. But it works really well. It's a, a great protection for the community to invite all of us, including you know the staff and teachers. We have to do it too. We're we're all invited into like exploring how to live our lives in this circle of giving and receiving in a way that makes us happy. And we can use Calm Ground sort of as a training place for that circle of giving and receiving and then take it into other places in our lives. See if we can find a way to be with a friend, be with a partner, be with our kids, a job scene, community scene, in a way where we're really practicing receiving whatever we get. It's not always pretty. We practice receiving it, working with it, and practice showing up and giving, letting go, being generous, realizing some way of not being stingy in all of our relationships. Like, what would that look like in this relationship? What does it look like in this relationship? To be generous, to be happy in our generosity, not out of balance in some way. So, uh, let us know if you have any questions about that. Gail Iverson, a longtime teacher here and leader and also our bookkeeper, she works on Tuesdays, so you can call if you need any specifics on 
Tuesday during business hours, or just check with me or Jean's here tonight. You can ask her, our program host, if you have any questions about that, how that works. And um, a lot of you know, but uh, we've been working as a complimentary text, uh, Ajahn Sushito's book, Meditation, A Way of Awakening. And Ajahn Sushito is a British Buddhist monk, longtime monk, I think 40 years now, and uh, is a wonderful writer as well and teacher. And uh, this book is available online. We always give the link to it in our weekly emails. It's up on our blog, um, or just send the center an email if you want to track it down and get your own copy of it. And for those who are reading along, we're pages 107 to 127. And in this area, in this section rather, he's talking about what he calls the great heart. I spoke of this a couple weeks ago. And uh, you could call it the empathetic heart or the intuitive heart or the feeling heart. And it's useful to think of our mind, our heart, in two ways. In the West, we divide it up. We, you know, we call one the heart and we call the other the mind. But in the East, chitta is the word, the Pali word, and it really includes both what we would call the heart and mind. But it's also useful to distinguish just to get a better sense of what, what's going on here and how they work together. So to the analytical mind, the thinking mind, the language-based mind that can compare, that categorizes, you know, creates good and bad, puts things into compartments, categories. Right? That's a very useful part of our mind, part of our heart, to be able to think things through. Abstract, right? Like, I have a relationship with another person. I abstract it into my mind, and I'm thinking about it. So when I'm thinking about my relationship with another person, it's not the relationship; it's my thoughts about the relationship, right? But I might have some. I might sort of, if my there's enough integrity to my sort of thinking process, my analytical process as I think through the relationship and is it working and how could it be different, then I might get a window that will actually inform the actual relationship. Or it could be unskillful, endless spinning about my relationship, which maybe it is more often, right? So there's that part of the mind, that part of the heart, and then there's another part of the heart that you might call this intuitive, not language-based, where we're really relying on a feeling into. It's really a stripping away uh, or a valuing of that sensitivity. A lot of times, the sensitive heart feels like a burden, you know, that we have to manage with drugs and alcohol and media, entertainments, because I don't want to feel what I'm feeling right now. So I'm going to go watch TV or I'm going to go to bed, or I'm going to have a drink, or I'm going to have some caffeine. A lot of these choices, like to eat, to drink caffeine, to drink alcohol, we're managing what we're feeling. It's like we don't think we can just feel what we're feeling, be vulnerable or expose. So to develop this kind of wisdom, it's another kind of wisdom, another intelligence, and uh, so we need to, initially, we need to value it. 
and to cultivate it. I was kidding this morning when I gave this talk, like, you know, for a homework assignment, you can maybe choose a couple relationships, a couple situations in your life that maybe you just feel you could be more skillful in, maybe at work with somebody or maybe in some place in the community that you're engaged, but you feel like some habit energies tend to come out in that place that you don't trust too much or you don't think are very helpful, useful. And then, So then you could just decide, okay, I'm going to not try to figure out who I should be in that situation, but instead I'm going to uh, make the resolve to remember to feel into it. And even when it comes up as a thought or memory, then you can just practice there with some distance, feeling into that memory you're having or that anticipation. But when, especially when you're there, it's like walking through the door, you know, and there's this big, tender, sensitive, vulnerable heart. And we're not like feeling into it in order to figure it out. It's like the feeling is the intelligence itself. Like the feeling, whatever we're feeling, whatever we're intuiting, whatever, like in terms of empathy, whatever we're sensing in the body, around us, it becomes, in a sense, the feeling, the being open to the feeling that becomes who we are in that situation. Whoever we are, whatever we do, however we respond, whatever we say, it comes out of being sensitive or feeling what we're feeling. So to not be feeling what we're feeling means our response is limited because we're cut off. We're not aware of what we're feeling. We're not interested. We're not valuing it. We don't, we, you know, often, depending on who you are, but often we think like, feeling what I'm feeling confuses me. I'd rather be in the certainty of my thoughts, like you're wrong here, <laughs> or I'm wrong here. Because the thing about moving into that empathetic, feeling, exposed, open place, it's like we lose whatever conceptual meaning we might be normally projecting onto the situation, onto the relationship. We lose it for a while. I mean, ultimately, the two are going to dance together. They're going to inform each other, the thinking mind, analytical mind, categorizing mind, and the intuitive mindful, mindfully present mind, they really support each other. But if you're out of balance, and I think generally a lot of us are out of balance in that way, then we might need to just practice this other way of being, especially in certain places in our life. Especially if you notice that when you're afraid, what do you do when you're afraid? Notice if you go to like wanting to define the situation. Like when you're angry at somebody, notice how easy it is to want to go to the thought like why they deserve my anger, why they did something, whatever they did, why that's bad, why they shouldn't have done that, why they deserve to be punished. That could be you. Maybe you did something you think you'd... But 
we tend to define it, categorize it, analyze it, structure it in terms of you know, conceptual meaning of good and bad, in and out. It's like we could do this right now. If we just, you know, we could think, okay, common ground's a good place. But actually, another sort of truth is it feels like this now. And see, that you don't need a definition like common ground's a good place or a bad place. I'm glad I came tonight. I'm, I wish I hadn't come tonight. Like, and they're both, they really, both of those inform what's here. It's not like our thoughts, the conclusion our mind has drawn, it's not like that, that's irrelevant. But it's really so much better if it's dancing with a very clear, intuitive, empathetic, felt sense, like being here feels like this now. And this is why in, in Buddhist practice, there's a real emphasis on mindfulness of the body. Just being open, being aware of the experience of embodiment. And not embodiment in the sense of my idea of the body, right? Because that's, again, it's a subtle but uh, common way of trying to control our experience by basically telling our mind, telling our heart how the body feels instead of you know, really feeling the body, opening to the body is a kind of wilderness. Right? Precisely because we're not trusting or not being dependent on how our thinking mind defines the body. Or oh, my body feels bad now. Now that might be useful if we're going to communicate. Someone asks you, how's your body feeling? You know, we might need to say something like, well, there's a lot of pain. It hurts right now. But in terms of being open and being letting my life be informed by the reality of what's here and now, I don't need to draw any conclusion. I don't need to categorize my experience of my body. So to develop this relationship with the body, you know, as our like our training ground for how to be empathetic, how to be intuitive, how to feel into, how to sort of cultivate this other kind of intelligence, we can develop all of this with this awareness of body. And to learn to, uh, to, learn to rest or trust the sensitivity, right? The mind or the heart is already sensitive to the body, already exposed to the body. And instead of thinking that, thinking of that as a heavy trip, like, oh my God, I gotta feel my body, I don't wanna feel, like we like to get out of our body, be disembodied. But that's only because, you know, once we uh, have gotten absorbed into something, you go see a fun movie, and it's really engaging, and in a way we get lost in it for a while, or a novel, or you're playing poker with your friends, or you're having a good time playing basketball, or knitting, or you know whatever it might, listening to music, whatever it might be. And then the song's over. The song that you were delighting, the movie you were delighting in is over. And then there's that sort of 
sinking feeling like, oh my God, my life. (laughs) And all that's unresolved, all the unfinished business, it's all here. And it can feel a little overwhelming. This is so interesting. I remember when I first moved to Minneapolis with um, my spouse before we were married. And we'd go out to movies from time to time. And uh, she noticed, and I noticed too, eventually, how irritable I was after movies. <laughs> and eventually it dawned on me what was going on. It was that process of coming back into this felt sense of my life, this world, my body, having escaped, having transcended it because of the great skill of our movie makers, right? That they know every how to strum every emotional string and really, I mean, if they're good, they know how to draw us in. Right? We really leave behind, like a good dream, we, in a sense, leave behind our world for a while. It's still, we're still right in the middle, very middle of our world, but we don't think we are. It feels a little transcended from it. And then when we come back, it can be shocking. So the approach in terms of our Dharma practice, the approach is never to leave it. I mean, so ideally we'd live our whole life with all the wounds, all everything that's unfinished, all the joy, all the beauty, everything's right here. We're like totally vulnerable, exposed, integrated, empathetic with, and not only our own wounds and joys and sorrows and unfinished business, but everybody else's too, right? Because there's not boundaries in the way that we think there are boundaries. So we're moving through the world wide open. Always, you probably have heard, some of you have heard me say this, but as a Catholic growing up, I had statues in my bedroom of St. Francis and St. Joseph and Mother Mary. And all, at least those three statues I remember, they all had hearts that were outside of the body. And you probably have seen these, this style of statues, you know, with a heart sort of sitting out, just like exposed. It's like a provocative image. Like, I mean, so is somebody on a nail to a cross. <laughs> these are really provocative images. And I, and I think used the right way can be very informative. Like it's not, I don't, I think, uh, you know, all, all, most of the spiritual traditions, even if they're, even if the point is missed a lot of the time, a lot of these symbols have some truth embedded in them. Like if we can just learn how to use it, use them. So this exposure, like that's a sign, like a saint, isn't somebody who has this Teflon, you know, three-inch thick stainless steel protection around their heart, and that's what makes them, you know, that's their superpower. The superpower is the exposure, like the willingness to feel. I'll say something. This is a little, I don't know, hopefully it's not gross to anybody, but I, one of my teachers way back when um, lived in Hawaii, and he, he had befriended these uh, native Hawaiians. And uh, this is back probably in the 80s, nine, early 90s. And they, uh, they wanted to uh, rediscover some of the ancient uh, 
techniques for how these Polynesian people were able to navigate these vast distances of the Pacific Ocean to get to places like Hawaii, some of the other islands. And uh, so a young, youngish um, Hawaiian man learned from some of the uh, elders in the Polynesian tradition of, of navigation. And these uh, native people up in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska donated this huge tree. I forget what species it was. And they made one of those great canoes with the little rudder on the outside. And, uh, and what he learned is you know, this sort of intuition Right? Like, how do, you, how do you connect with the breeze and the currents and the magnetic field? Like, what do we use? I mean, the more that naturalists, biologists study animals, it, it's like there's really no end to sensitivity. Like, what sensitivity can sense? So th- this is the funny part. One of the ways that they would do it, the guy, the navigator, would get down into the hole. I mean, it's a pretty big... Uh, dugout canoe, and he'd put his testicles on the floor of the of the canoe. You know, I, I'm not sure what that would do, but <laughs> and basically meditate. You know, like not like try to figure it out, right? It wouldn't be the analytical mind, but there's something about a stripping away, right? the stripping away, or temporarily at least putting down. Oh, I gotta figure out. Like, do we go left? Do we go right? Do we go straight? But putting it all down, and and you know the the uh, sense of me, like in that situation, me being a navigator with my crew, totally dependent on me finding the needle in the haystack. You know that island in the middle of the vast Pacific. You know that that idea that I gotta figure this out. It's very debilitating. So to whatever degree that a mind, a heart, a body is capable of being sensitive, capable of attuning to what's here and now, to what's happening, to the different dynamics that are at play in the present moment, it's like fear is not going to help because fear always arises from a disconnected, separate sense, right? So this is the thing about this other kind of intelligence that I'm pointing to tonight, but whether whatever you want to call it, this empathetic heart, this feeling heart, this intuitive heart, awareness, non-conceptual awareness, right? So whatever we call it, it demands, it requires a putting down, putting aside any sense of separation, any construction. Because remember... The sense of me being a part is an idea. Like you can just check right now. When you just sense into the present moment, feel into the body, for example, or you can feel into the room. But to the degree we feel into the present moment in this way, you can't, the mind can't be categorizing there's me and there's all of you. Right? Like if I'm in that space, if I'm operating from that frame, I'm not feeling into the body, feeling into the moment, feeling into the room, connecting, empath- empathizing, uh, and sensing, intuiting what's here. 
So it's a, it's a putting aside. Now, we can pick it right back up. And I mentioned a while back, there's this dance between the thinking mind and the intuitive mind. We work best as a human being when both are, have a lot of integrity. And when the thinking mind is informed by the intuitive mind, and then also the thinking mind, the analyzing mind, the strategizing mind, can also inform the intuitive mind by suggesting where it might feel into, like where the shadow is. Maybe, oh, I think maybe I notice, right? Because I'm analyzed, I've analyzed the situation. I notice that when I'm in conversation with somebody that I'm afraid. So maybe I can feel into that fear. Right? So that's like that would be really useful for the analyzing thinking mind to kind of abstract, having observed in an intuitive way, then abstract it and think, okay, what's going on here? Why is that not working so well? Oh, I think I... And then, okay, so then do this. Right? Maybe you need to tune into this over here or feel into this over there. Or be curious about, well, what's not being felt? What's not being seen in this relationship I have with this person? Why do we always bump heads? Maybe there's something not being seen. Maybe there's something that's not being felt. So that's the idea is that we want to bring our mind, our heart, our body into this very dynamic balance. And so we need like, we need the edge of the unknown that this intuitive, empathetic heart, this exposure brings. But if it's too much, right? if we have no capacity to organize our world and tell ourselves a good story, we won't be able to function in the world. Like if all we could do is be intuitive, but never sort of interpret it in a way that helps us organize our life, we wouldn't be very effective as a human being. It's like the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha are this way too, right? I mean, there's a lot of conceptual, a lot of mapping out, a lot of analytical, you know, just listening to these talks, reading the books, go to the bookstores these days, and there's like so many books about Buddhism. It's a little overwhelming. But the idea is the books inspire this intuitive practice and then the exposure from the intuitive practice inspires us to read and listen to what other people have concluded about their intuitive experience. right? And then we get more confidence, a little bit more faith to put everything down and to be in this unformed, not to find open, intuitive space. And we discover everything that we don't want to feel and everything that we've always looked for is here, in a way. So we have to be prepared, you know, to be surprised. It's like, on purpose, it's not safe. This is why, on the surface, we avoid this work. We always put it off. On some level, intuitive, we know it's good to do. It, we, is there anybody in the room who doesn't sense, like, it would be nice 
just to have a half a day and not do anything. And just, you wouldn't necessarily say it in these words, but and just feel into my life for half a day. You know, just let whatever needs to move, move. We all kind of know that that would be good, but later, later. I'll do that later. I got to get my act together first. I got to do this. And then even when we've set aside that time, it's like we're there and we notice, oh, I got to go do that. And then I got to do that. Maybe I'll make myself a cup of tea. And it's just interesting. It's really actually quite useful for us to honestly acknowledge how on some level the mind, heart, body feels threatened by not having anything to do right? in a sort of in a defined way, not having to be somebody. I think a lot of people have kids for this reason. It gives their life structure and meaning, or they become devoted to this cause, or they become, you know, interested in making a lot of money, or doing the Sunday puzzle, or, you know, these structures that can take on this enormous meaning and importance in our lives. I've got to listen to the news. And it's like, well, who am I? What is this if I don't listen to the news, or if I don't do the Sunday puzzle, or if I don't go hang out with my friends tonight? Am I afraid of that? I mean, it's not like doing the Sunday puzzle is bad or hanging out with our friends are bad. But if it's because I'm afraid to be unformed, if I'm afraid to sort of feel into my life, well, that's kind of relevant, isn't it? To sort of check into that. Well, what's that about? Is it dangerous for us to be interested in that, be interested in feeling into it? One of the most useful things we can do is... uh, you know, after a, a difficult day, is to go home and not do anything, just to lie down. It's often the best posture for the first, you know, 10 minutes or so. Just lie down and just invite yourself to feel whatever's still moving from the day. And in that kind of work, any idea, anything your mind says about what happened, don't try to push it away, but just keep asking, well, what does it feel like? What's the heart feeling now? What's moving in the body? What does the body feel like now? Does it feel numb? You might need to ask some questions, right? This is how, like I was saying, how the thinking mind can support this, the work of intuition and how the work of intuition can support the thinking mind. So the thinking mind can point invite, encourage that kind of exposure and sensitivity. What's not being felt here? What's here, but out of habit, not being felt, not being recognized? What's moving? What wants to move here? Is there anything that the heart is afraid to feel, afraid to acknowledge? What does the heart want? What feeling 
You know, what feeling is the heart looking for? What's in the way of that feeling? So just, that's another homework assignment. So one is just to, in different places of your life that seem charged or confusing or impactful, then just practice feeling into it. And it might be that, you know, in, if it involves a lot of you talking or being, you know, in conversation with other people, you know, just appreciate the little breaks and immediately drop into the experience of the body. And you can, you know, you can have a phrase ready. What are you feeling? What's being felt here? How's the body doing? Is there anything moving here that I'm afraid to feel? Is it actually dangerous to be sensitive to what's here? Because isn't that, that's sort of the story we tell, like something bad will happen if I'm willing to be exposed to what I'm feeling. This is such an interesting place. And you might even remember times throughout your life where you got cornered in a way, in a sort of an emotional, psychological way, by something you've been avoiding feeling, but somehow it was following you, you know? And then one day it just sort of catches you in a corner and there's nowhere to turn. And you might... If you're lucky, you might remember some of these moments because I think it just generally happens to everybody many times that even though it seemed like it was the worst thing, the most dangerous thing, given that you were cornered and you didn't have any choice but to feel what you were feeling, how did it turn out? Like, Was it actually dangerous? Did it, was it destructive? Did something bad happen because we felt what we were feeling? We practice, to whatever degree, being undefended, interested, letting whatever wanted to move, move. So that's one, you know. And then the other is, after something, give yourself some space. On purpose, don't do anything. You know, lie down, sit down, be relatively physically still, or if that's too if it's too intense, maybe walking in a spacious place where there's not a lot of distractions, like around the lake or something like that. That might give you more safety to feel into whatever's left over from the interaction or from a difficult time. And it might be the difficult time might have been twenty years ago, but for whatever reason it's found its way to the surface and there it is. And so are we gonna spend our life hiding, running from it? Or are we going to say, oh, I guess you want to be felt. You want to be seen. You want to move. And instead of relying on our analytical mind to figure out what happened back then, why did it happen, it's not that all that is bad, but it may be the first thing to do is to realize it's okay to feel whatever's moving. And we don't have to And that work, you don't have to describe to yourself what it is or why it's there or what you should do about it. It's like being sensitive, being awake, being open, being unafraid to some degree is it. It's not like, and then what? 
And I think I mentioned to the group a couple of weeks ago this line from uh, Rev. Anderson where he said, an ordinary person is vulnerable some of the time, but uh, a really well-practiced person is vulnerable all of the time. So we want like that, those statues I mentioned earlier, we want to move through our life with this, like in this intuitive, empathetic sense, we're exposed. And not just to our own unfinished business, but to sort of collective unfinished business. All the sorrow, all the trauma, all the fear, all the joy, all the wisdom, all the kindness. Like all these currents that flow through humanity, all of our hearts. Because remember what I said earlier, separation is an idea, this idea that I'm a part, you know, so your stuff is your stuff. My stuff is my stuff, sure, but your stuff is your stuff. Their stuff over there, that's their stuff over there. But is that really true? A lot of times, like in our practice, people who are doing a lot of practice, the enormity of the grief and the enormity of the joy and the enormity of all the different things that come up, you you really get this pretty clear sense that what we're feeling isn't specific to the, what we would call like my life. And then so people start saying, well, it must be something from my past life. Well, yeah, but it what it really is, it's just stuff, right? It's the pain, the joy, the unknown. It's really the wildness of our heart. And it, when we start opening to that, it's no wonder we want to stay in our thinking minds. Because it is, it's a little bit like being in the wild, in the unknown, in, in what's uncertain. But this is real awakening, right? Awakening with uh, awakening within the context of total exposure, not only to whatever is unfinished in my sort of emotional makeup, but what's unfinished everywhere. All of the trauma, all of the joy. So, no one said it would be easy, <laughs> this work. But the, the interesting thing is it's so much harder to avoid this work than to do this work. It's just that we're not aware of how much effort goes in. We haven't paid attention to how much effort goes in to avoid feeling what we're feeling, to avoid the exposure that is just natural to being a human being. And we're so busy avoiding it that we don't recognize how stressful that is. So, remember these two homework assignments. Lie down. Okay, let's see what's left over. What's moving. What's asking for attention. Not on the level of what I think is going on with me, but just in a more direct and immediate feeling into. And then the other is, to practice moving through different places in your life with your superpower of sensitivity. Right? So instead of like, I've got my strategy, like what I'm going to say to the person or how I'm going to handle this situation. So you put that aside and you're really feeling strong in the I don't know, but I'm willing to feel into 
And then whatever I say, whatever I do, however I handle the situation, it will come out of the intimacy of feeling into what's ever going on in that situation. I'll just let my response come out of that intention to be intimate, to be willing to feel into it. So I'll leave it here. So we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from folks. I'm sure in a group this size that a lot of you have had experiences where you've learned a thing or two about feeling into the moment and how much stress there is in avoiding it. I'm just going to open the window a little bit. So uh, it would be nice to hear from you, and it would also be nice to hear any questions that you have based on what I've said. And uh, remember to point the mic right at your mouth and say your name. You want to start, Ann? I once had this director, um, really brilliant man, and everybody knew he was brilliant. They just, uh, he would speak and he would just synthesize so many things. And somebody once asked him, why are you in theater? Like, we were like the lowlifes of the planet. Why are you in theater? Because everybody know he could have done, med- he could have been anything. And he said, well, theater is the one place where feelings are treated like intelligence. And so that just fits into what you're saying. Like when we're grounded in our feelings, sometimes we really know who we are and we really know who other people are. Yeah. And I think this in part has to do with patriarchy because it's probably more of uh, a masculine trait, the sort of analytical and the intuitive is, I mean, we have both within all of us, right? The feminine and the masculine, but generally speaking, and I, so I think it got less emphasis, especially in the West. And uh, yeah, so there's people like that. And then there's like the book uh, that Daniel Goleman wrote, Emotional Intelligence. So it's starting to come out where people are naming this kind, other kind of intelligence. Yeah, thanks, Anne. Who would like to speak? So I would love to hear more of your thoughts on, um, I'm thinking of the person in particular that I want to do this feeling into, um, but it's in a setting that I feel like, and this is kind of general for me, um, I feel like it's not socially acceptable. So how do you sort of, you know, like be in a group, in a work setting, feeling into it, but not, but also still blending in, do you know what I Like, because this is not mass culture that I live in right now, at least, but in like my everyday even, life. But even right now, you know, all of us listening to you, you know, maybe there's a little insecurity as we just sort of like, you know how it is, when, especially when you're one-on-one with another person and, and when you realize that there's some insecurity. So part of it is realizing that I don't need to be afraid of being insecure or I don't need to be afraid of not knowing what I'm going to say next. Like I can include that feeling of fear. So just practice, maybe start where it's more safe, but just practice including what you're feeling. And and you'll notice that instead of having uh, being less skilled at responding, showing up, doing what's next, you might find that you're more creative that your response more nimble, more intuitive, more, yeah, just more degrees of freedom in terms of how you handle situations with your kids. Or, so start where it's relatively easy. It won't be weird. And it doesn't mean that people notice on the surface that we're feeling into the moment. 
we don't need to announce it to the world. You know, if somebody asks you, like, you know, the situation that Anne was saying, you know, like, what's with it? What's with you? You know, and the person said, well, I really value that these, that this part of our intelligence is being honored here. And you can explain that if people are interested, but you don't have to. And people kind of get it intuitively, don't they? It's like if you're modeling it, even though you never explain it, people start picking up vibrationally. See, this is the thing about this empathetic place. See, we can all meet there right now. What's in the way of us all meeting in that place right now? I thought, like, how do I do it? Do I know how to do it? See, it's like getting identified on that level freezes us up. Because it's all, in a way, that space, that empathetic space, that like all in the same soup space, it's already here. It's already happening. The mind, the heart, whatever, it's already sensitive. The mechanisms, whatever those intuitive, empathetic mechanisms are, they're already operating. But we're, we're just not paying attention to it. So it's not like we have to recreate or create the system that's going to be empathetic. It's already happening. It's already quite brilliant. But we just aren't paying attention to it because we're afraid. So we cling to our ideas or you know, the particular part of the mind that has been rewarded a lot. Yeah, Omkar, please. I'm just, you know, sitting with this um, this concept and and technology, right, and Facebook, and how it's almost. I feels like it's like structurally incredibly much more challenging to be vulnerable. Like it's like there's it's like all intellectual so often, right? And there's not like a heart space like if someone shared something and then i went into a heart space they might feel judged and then they would attack it it just like spirals it's like almost i never rarely will see like oh yeah i really liked what you shared and i would add this oh yeah yeah that's good and then you know it's like becomes this like you know and like i feel like we were we can create these systems of communication that like build on the headspace so much more and they're they're moving so quickly too that so i'm just sitting with like how how you know it's like a different level of skillfulness that we have to adapt to to learn to communicate in in those different contexts where sort of the heart space isn't even acknowledged or recognized because i can't see or feel the other person in the same way yeah yeah i think that's true the the new media but i but the real answer is this uh, experience of embodiment. Like when you're texting, when you're doing social media, what's, what gets, uh, why would it be inefficient or ineffective? Uh, what would the reason, what could be the reason not to be in the experience of embodiment while we're texting? Or even why we're having this conversation now. Like you just drop into your body, try and just try to remember as often as you, you have to come re- return to the body. And you'll see that our conversation together is only benefited by.
by most of us, most of the time, trusting this sense, this intuitive sense of body. I do some Skype teaching down for the community down in Rochester. Usually once a month I'll give a talk via Skype. And they got a big screen there, so they see me. And then I've got my computer screen, and, and, and I have a pretty, I can see most people. But it's hard, you know, to give a Dharma talk in that setting. But, but I find that really staying in my own body, because I can have an authentic relationship with my, with my body, and the words I'm speaking, they're landing here in the same way. Like, so instead of being dependent on, like, how I intuitively think the words are landing for them, or this sort of more energetic connection. It's like I have to rely more on my this energetic connection with myself. And don't I? You know, Omkar's a therapist. You probably have that time at times with clients when they're just not able to show up for whatever reason, but the conversation for whatever reason thing, seems useful. And so it's like you're not getting. They're closed down, or they're you know whatever. So you have to rely on just sort of the your own relationship to what you're saying to sort of guide you forward into whatever's going to be next. Yeah. And then avoiding it when it's not needed. You know, the world's going to keep changing, but we don't have to adapt everything. So I thought it was interesting. I, this is just a small example, but I don't know what it was. Maybe five, seven years ago, everybody thought books were over. Paper books were over, right? It's just a matter of time before everything we read is electronic. And now they're finding it's actually going the other way. More people going back to paper books. Now, I don't know how it's going to play out in the end, but I think it's, it's like we don't, just because the technology exists doesn't mean we have to use it. Yeah. Thanks, Omkar. Other thoughts? We have a little bit more time for one or two more people. Yeah, please. You want to pass it over to Kermit? Yeah, I'll have a recurrent situation in the morning where I'll feel like, have like an emotional pain that's like truly scary. You know, it's trying to corner me and it's trying to be felt in my body, I guess. And I'll, I'll try to be comfortable with the moment and, you know, follow my breath a little and that. And then it's gone. You know, it comes back later on, but it's like I, I'm missing an opportunity or something. I don't know. I, don't, I anyway, maybe you have some insight in that. Yeah, but remember, it's a it's a wilderness. We're not in control. So that's that analytical mind projecting. Excuse me, what we think should be happening in that world of of that world of being exposed. And we don't really know that world. It isn't knowable. It isn't graspable, maybe is better to say. It's just going to be what it is. We know it's lawful. We know it has its own kind of coherence, its own intelligence. But we can't own it in some way. And that's, the part of the, that's this other part of the mind that wants to map it out and wants it to be clean like, and dependable. And so it's a nice balance. It's like... Um, the intuitive feeling into the world, feeling feeling into our lives, that exposure, 
it, it always demands a humility, which is really useful. It's like, well, it's gone. It was there. What my mind told me when it was there is this is going to be here forever, or this is going to take some serious work. And then it's like gone. It's so interesting. It, like uh, in retreat practice, just some tremendous stuff can show up in a practice, like the poignant emotional feeling. And, and the mind that, that wants to interpret it, tell a story about it, will tell a story that's like, oh my God, you finally have unearthed that deep trauma from this or that, you know, and you're going to work. And then it's like two minutes later, ten minutes later, the mind's just superficial or, you know, it's just like thinking about dinner or something like that. And it was like life or death a few moments before. And you just see that, oh yeah, it's like the Buddha says, one of the great lines from the Buddhist teachings, no matter how you conceive it, it will always be other than that. Meaning you can never grasp it with thought, with concept. You can't pin it down. So when things like that happen, the relevant thing is, oh, the mind had an expectation. The mind thought it understood it thought it had it figured out, and it never, you never can figure it out. And then you say, oh, okay, that's a little scary. <laughs> kind of living that way, where you're never going to, without, but we don't want to dismiss the analytical mind just because we can't get it down 100%. It's a little bit like quantum physics, like where things uh, exist on, in terms of probabilities. There's still probabilities, but you can't nail it down, right? So this is the purpose of analytical thinking is to sort of, I like to say, right? Because part of what analytical thinking will tell you is like, you can't really figure this out, but given, given what I've seen and, you know, as I go through the data, this is what I think, but I know it's just what I think right now. That's all it is. It's what I think right now. Imagine having a political discussion. This is what I think right now. And know that it, that's all it is. It isn't the truth. It doesn't represent a static opinion. This is how the world looks to me right now. I think we should get married. Or, you know, I think we should do this. I think, and then, but it may be different in the next moment. It's interesting to have relationships that way. You know, like, right now, because that's honest. Right now, I really love you. Right now, I need some space. And it's like both are true. Moment to moment, it can be that different. And that's a real friend when you can be like, you know, I just can't be around you right now. And that's like the person gets it because they see how it's like that moment to moment too. I want to be with you. And you people who are parents, you see this all the time. It's like, mommy, mommy, mommy. And then, you know, like, get away. <laughs> we need to leave it here. It's 8.30. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Just enough time for a couple breaths together. Feel into the space of our body and our heart and the room, the whole world. Being okay with not knowing. 
And thanks again, everyone, for showing up, being here together. It's really great to uh, show up together and do these practices. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.